Welcome to Blackbird episode number 74. My name is James, and today I am welcoming back to the show Andrew from Popular Liberty. You'll remember Andrew from his previous appearance on Blackbird, where we talked in depth about archotropism and sort of the human proclivity to seek out rulers and why he believes libertarianism is probably a futile concept, or at least a futile um, like political goal. In this episode, we get a little bit more into the meat of his framework. We talk about the anti-tax. I raise some of my issues with it. We also get into some of the more spiritual aspects of where he's coming from. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a pretty long conversation, which is good because he has a lot to say. And, you know, if you're really into this sort of thing, I think you're going to enjoy it. And if you're not, I think you probably should still listen to it because it's very important and I think you're going to be hearing a lot about Andrew and sort of his little circle of Praxians, as he calls them. Don't forget, I record these interviews sometimes several weeks in advance. I recorded this interview about three and a half weeks ago. And also, there is plenty of pre-show banter where the guests and I just kind of shoot the breeze. So if you're interested in getting these interviews a little bit early and sort of joining in the conversation before I actually welcome the person to the show head over to blackbirdpodcast.com and sign up for one of the premium feeds. Not only will you be getting these interviews early, but you'll also be supporting me financially, and I really appreciate it. And with that, here is my conversation with Andrew from Popular Liberty. Andrew, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again today. James, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, totally. So, uh, since the last time you were here, so last time I think we pretty much went over archotropism in a nutshell, uh, and then sort of your plan for Mises GOP. Is that about right? Yeah, kind of. Um, we got we got into it a little bit with the Mises GOP. That was kind of okay. the tail end, okay, very cool. tail end. Cool. Well, uh, we can we can talk a little bit more about that too. Um, I joined your Mises GOP MeWe group. Mm-hmm. Thanks for allowing me in. I know that uh, I know that. I'm not necessarily completely on board with all of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can talk about that too, but uh, I've, since the last time we talked, so last time I think I was Mises Caucus Libertarian Party guy having um, some semblance of second thoughts about it. Uh, At this point, I'm like, so I'm, I'm still like on the state board and for the Minnesota LP and I don't plan on resigning or anything like that. But uh, I'm kind of, as it turns out, Adam, Patrick, and I have kind of entered the same sort of like path uh, where um, politics probably just isn't really what we want to focus on at all. Uh, so I'm feeling, yeah. I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I'm derelict in my duty to the LP and the Mises Caucus. So I'm feeling a little bit guilty as far as that goes. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, how much, how much difference would it make whether I stay or go? I mean, the LP is the LP, you know. So yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. The only uh, person who's going to get anything done with the LP is Dave Smith. It's like, he's like, like without Dave Smith, there is no LP strategy. Yeah. So yeah. it's and, really just the Dave Smith plus mass media strategy. And, and it's, you know, the LP, the LP brings the L to the table. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that in the, in the, in the MeWe group, and I think also on Twitter, you had asked, 
you, you were like starting to kind of recruit candidates for DA in Wisconsin. So we're recording this mm-hmm. um, the day after jury instructions went down on the Rittenhouse trial. So like they finished making all their arguments and stuff. And so we kind of know where they're at, that kind of mm-hmm. feckless um, worthless prosecutor. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I mean, a good prosecutor might've been able to actually make a, a, something of a case. I don't know. Uh, and we don't know what the jury is going to say, but it's looking at this point, like Rittenhouse should get off on all of the charges, including the weapons charge, which I thought he was pretty slammed dunk guilty on. Um, but as it turns out, Wisconsin has a loophole. So, um, anyway, you, what was that loophole? Uh, basically the minor in possession of a firearm law mm-hmm. applies to people 16 and under or something like that. Oh, so and he's, th- seven, and, he's 17. Yeah. And there was <laughs> okay. a, and there was also like some sort of hunting exception, uh, that they were trying to pin on him because he wasn't hunting or something. I don't really know. Tim pool did a long video on it. Uh, and, um, I was only half watching cause I was, I was also working and kind of as I do with Tim Pool, um, I try not to, I try not to listen too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, so you, you'd like to have a Mises GOP person or at least you'd like to have someone good run for DA in yeah. Kenosha, Wisconsin. I mean, that's, you know, good is a relative term. You know what I mean? That's sure. like, that's like, you know, that DA who's in there is a really low bar. If you can, that you know it's yep. like you know virtually anybody even in the libertarian party would be better than that you know forget yeah. like a forget like a right winger or a mises gop guy like a praxian or a paleo any standard libertarian you know capital l libertarian i'd take him over that over that da and you know i point out hey 67 out of 71 of those races in wisconsin for the for district attorney were completely uncontested mm-hmm. you know so it's like i i think we can beat them it's like that's a yeah. This is exactly that's why I made that point. And instead of trying to dunk on the uh, right wingers for positions they haven't held for at least three, two or three years, you know, it's like uh, I think my messaging was way better. You know, um, positions that they haven't had in two or three three years, such as what uh, that you know they're all gung ho on the cops. <laughs> you know, mm, that's mm-hmm. like uh, that they, you know they've been you know pretty you know, vocal about how they're they're viewing the cops with, and particularly the justice system and the DAs. Yeah. Since 2018, they've been really good on saying, oh no, this is not the, ju- this is not a justice system. In fact, you could put that all the way back to the Russia probe where they started to get kind of red-pilled on, hey, what the fuck, you know? Yeah. Especially, well, and especially the FBI. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, like Stephen Crowder the other day, you know, I retweeted a whole bunch of these where he's been like on a tear about the FBI mm-hmm. saying, they're worse than the mafia, you know, that like these guys are not, are illegitimate. I will support, he said, I will support the Republican candidate who promises to abolish the FBI and fundamentally restructure all of our intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is Steven Crowder, a yep. normie mainstream conservative. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he's talking like, you know, a Rothbardian. And, you know, and I see like the LPMC, like, no mention of it. They don't want to work with that guy. He's, you know, he supports Israel or something like that. And I'm like, what the oh, fuck? Boy. You know, this is, like, this is like a perfect opportunity to reach out. I mean, he's if he said, he literally said, the FBI is worse than, you know, Al Capone. You know, and that's literally almost <laughs> like, how, how, how could you not like look at that and be like, you know, when Dave Smith says, oh yeah, the, the state is uh, the mafia masquerading as a human rights organization. And here's you know, him saying, they're actually worse than the gangsters. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like, come on, what you don't want to work, you don't want to reach out to this, you just want to dunk on them, and you want to uh, just say, Oh, I told you so. And it's like, 
what kind of messaging is this? You know, um, you know what I mean? They've raised my the, voice, but it's, it's no, just it's fine. frustrating. It's I, do you think that the right, broadly speaking, while they're becoming skeptical of the institutions, still kind of worship the individuals? Is that where they're, do you think that's where a blind spot might be? Uh, yeah. How, how do you mean? Well, I mean, they're still, they're still gung ho about the boys in blue and uh, the, you know, and also the soldiers. So even if they're, even if they're opposed to the system that they work for, they still kind of, I mean, bow down at the altar of the cops and, and well, I mean, and that's their, that's their families and stuff like that. Right. So yeah, of course they're going to do, they're going to support, you know, their families and their communities because that's who they are, you mm-hmm. know, but they're, you know, as far as the institution of itself, if you're calling for, you know, fundamental restructuring and, and or abolition, it's like, uh, you know, I kind of think you know, that's actually the best balance. You know, I, I don't think you should be opposed to your families or anything like that just because they cho- they've chosen a uh, like to be a cop. It's like, you know, assuming you're, you're let's, 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 you know, give them the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, they actually really want to be, you know, like maybe defending their country against actual bad guys or they want to be, you know, chasing bank robbers or something like that. You can only do those jobs as a mm-hmm. part of the government. You know, it's yeah. like if you want to be a fireman or something like that, you can only do that as like part of the government. So it's like, I, and I don't really see a, a problem with, you know, being in there. You know, it's like, okay, you have to, you know, pick and choose what the actual uh, thing you're going to be doing while mm-hmm. you're in there is. That is a different story though. But, makes, you know, if you're the right wingers and you're like uh, calling for, you know, dre- institutional overhaul and or abolition, it's like, uh, you know, I want to reach out to those guys. You know, let's have a talk. <laughs> like they're talking, they're speaking my language now. Well, and I bet a bunch of them, I mean, you know, if there was like a competing private fire brigade, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Buck Johnson would join that in a heartbeat. You know what yeah. I mean? And speaking of Buck, uh, so you've you've recruited him, right? Or at least he's thinking about running for city council down in uh, his hometown, right? Yeah, I mean, there's two spots right there where, you know, that like the person who's representing him is extremely unpopular. People have figured out that she's actually a liberal. She's not a uh, she's not a conservative at all. He's in a very very right wing town, and so like she's unpopular, and he could totally beat her because she only got like a few hundred votes. And then at the other one, the at-large candidate, you know, only won with four votes. You know, not wow. won by four votes, with four total votes. And, her, you know, the, and that person's opponent won with, you know, lost with one vote. He voted for himself. That's the size of the race. There were five total votes cast in the at-large city council district. So it's like there's two opportunities right there where we could really, you know, just easy power grab. A real easy power grab. And, you know, it's like a, uh, and that's fairly typical, you know, that, that, that is not unusual for local uh, governments in, you know, more rural or suburban areas. That's fairly yeah. typical. I was just down there. It's a, it's a really cool town. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's close enough to Austin to where it feels, to, to where it's like the distance of a suburb. But when you're there, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. The only things that were a little bit concerning to me, and this is just kind of putting on my right wing hat, hat I guess. Um, first of all, the number of people wearing masks was was really, really, really surprising. Um, but then this... this if you this look bar, around, it's usually the old people. Yeah. And it's like, well, I kind of get it for them. Yeah, it was for sure. Um, yeah. And... 
the other thing, so they've got this really, really cute little town square with all the, like all these bars and not, mm-hmm. everything is locally owned, which I loved. There wasn't, a, like the only chain was H-E-B. Um, and even the H-E-B was a little tiny H-E-B. It was like nothing I'd ever walked into when I was in Texas. Um, but the bar where we had uh, the, the comedy special that Robbie Bernstein and Adam Nutter and uh, one other guy whose name I can't remember and also other people who haven't been able to remember his name and I wish I could. Uh, anyway, the, the front, the big front, you know, picture window in this bar had the rainbow flag, which, you know, is fine with me, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but inside, and it wasn't just the rainbow flag. It was the rainbow flag that has like the black and brown stripe, uh, oh, for, gosh. for racial minorities. And then also the, um, trans colors, which I think is like light blue and yeah. pink or something like that. Uh, so it was, you know, like the full on intersectional, LGBTQ, black and brown, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, flag yeah. um, on the outside. And then once you got into the inside, they were selling for $10 these placards that you could buy that say, don't Austin my, uh, God, I can't remember the name of the town. Shit. Yeah, don't Austin my Lockhart. <laughs> yeah, don't Austin my Lockhart. Like as in don't, don't turn, don't turn Lockhart into this, you know, left-wing Mecca. Talk about mixed um, messaging. <laughs> I know, super, super mixed messaging. I even texted Buck about it. I was... <laughs> And he was like, yeah, exactly. Um, so do you think that, I mean, is there, is there like a, like an underground left-wing movement in Lockhart? And if so, nah. is that, is that what Buck's running against? Or it, was that really just virtue signaling for the people who came to, came from Austin for some barbecue or something like that? Yeah, I think that's exactly what that was. That was, yeah. you know, a strategically placed marketing for, you know, tourists because Lockhart is the you know, barbecue capital of Texas. So. Yeah. I guess, I guess I guess I understand that. I, I don't, I don't think know. It makes it was, a difference. If you're driving all the way, which is like a 35 to 40 minute drive for yeah. barbecue, it's like you're probably not gonna like worry about whether they have a you know flag in the yeah. in the That's window true. or not. What is Crawford, Texas? Is that where George W. Bush's ranch is? I am not sure. Oh yeah, you're I, I, you're I, young. You don't remember West Texas. You don't you don't remember you don't remember when he was president. I think I think that's what it is. I keep wanting to call yeah. Lockhart Crawford, Texas, and I think that's where Bush would vacation when he was uh, when he was president. Yeah, he's he, he's all the way in West Texas. Austin is in the center of the state. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm not thinking geographically. I'm just thinking yeah. of the name of a small town. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. So, okay, good. I'm glad that I'm glad that you were able to clear that up a little bit. Um, you mentioned earlier. You you differentiated between Praxian and Paleo. I'd like to ask about that. Is there is there a big difference? Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there are several, uh, two okay. major differences, you know, that, you know, I would say what, the first and the and most important is the archotropism driven praxis. So as you, as we talked okay. about on my last, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, appearance on your show, you know, what the incentives of archotropism are and how, you know, we, we might deal with them, you know, we might deal with the state based on its own incentives you know, rather than just brute, using brute force against it, which, you know, is probably a losing proposition. And so the, uh, the anarchotropism-driven praxis would be something along the lines of, okay, how could we, you know, cut a deal with the state? And, you know, how can power coexist with liberty, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that that's something I'm exploring right now with the anti-tax. But the, uh, and, you know, let's, that, you know, put a pin on that topic for at least right now. But yeah, you know, we'll come back to it for sure. But okay. yeah, like, like an archotropism-driven praxis where we're looking at the state's incentives and its cost structure, uh, you know, across time, and we're going to be looking at how how do we deal with it based on its its own incentives. 
And so, and uh, that's something that a normal paleo libertarian will not do. And they'll try, they'll, they'll still do, you know, use like a more, you know, uh, classical uh, libertarian approach, which is, you know, we have to win democratically. We have to, you know, use the, uh, you know, the, the means of democracy to undermine the state, which is, I think that's a losing proposition. I don't think that's ever going to work. And, you know, just simply because the vast majority of people are highly evolved to not be ideological thinkers. So if you're trying to convert millions and millions of people to libertarianism, well, then you first have to start by converting them away from something they're highly evolved to do, which is follow their incentives. And you have to convert them to be ideological thinkers first, and then you can convert them to be mm-hmm. libertarians, you know, who are ideological people. And I just, I don't see that ever happening. Because yeah, that's if, just, if, that's not human incentives. That's not human evolution. If that would happen, if that were to happen, it would have to be generational almost. And we don't have that kind of time. And also, I mean, uh, given the gen- generational, you're talking on the multi-thousand year time scale. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Um, it, I guess if you were to, if you were to, think that way it would almost yeah i mean uh, if, if it took thousands of years then that's true um i mean you're talking would, like christianity took 1500 years to really civilize us to this point and true. that and you know that uh, it, that was not quick you know and we had spent yeah. the previous 10,500 just at basically zero you know all of human progress is in the last you know 1500 years whether you want to call it social progress or moral progress, or economic progress, or even technological progress, nearly all of it is in the last 1500 years, thanks to, you know, the uh, Christianity really pounding it into people's heads, mm-hmm. what, you know, is the, what, you know, moral order is, and stuff like that. And, you know, we, we're, you know, if you're trying to be like a libertarian, it's like, you, you, you don't have that kind of time, you know, you don't have another 1500 years to spend right. on this. Which is why I, I say, okay, well, plan B is how can we pay them to, you know, pay the people who are incentive-based thinkers, yeah. you know, to at least pay them to behave like libertarians. They don't have to think like like us. It would be nice if they did, but can we at least pay them to have this sort of behavior we want them to have? And that's where, you know, again, the anti-tax steps in is that this is a system for how we pay people to at least behave or, or, or better yet, vote like a Misesian would vote. And that would be substantially better and much faster. It sounds and, like it sounds like the paleo strategy, such as it is, um, and just, you know, in keeping with yeah. traditional political strategies, is sort of karate to Praxian's jiu-jitsu. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's the, more like taekwondo or something like yeah. that, where it's... It's uh, lots, not quite, uh, you know. Lots of, the, lots of strikes where Praxianism would have uh, more more throws and blocks and and just ways of yeah, dodging we, things. Working yeah, around we, the system such be, as it is. You know, it, it's push and pull, like kind of like judo. You know, I use my enemy's energy against him yeah. or something like that. It's a lot more like, you know, like judo. You know, where, you know, whereas, you know, I understand this is what's coming. So I'm going to take and pull, you know, take his arm and pull and, and, you know, move the state off balance and stuff like that. And, you know, try to pin and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, they're, they're, you know, the the paleos, they just want to be like, "Ah, I got my fist up. And, you know, if I'm, you know, if I, if the, uh, or it's like, if you're the regular thin lib, you're like, I'm not going to fight at all. <laughs> it's like punch, I don't care how many times you punch me in the face. It's an aggression and it's wrong. And it's like, okay, well, at least the uh, at least I can you know kind of compare the paleos to be like you know boxers mm-hmm. or something like that or taekwondo. 
uh, you know, boxing tends to work a little bit better, but you know, the uh, Taekwondo, eh, eh, you know, that's like not, not downing that, but you know, there's, you know, it's, it's a different kind of fighting style. Whereas, and the other one, the other difference between like a, a Praxian and a, and a typical paleo is going to be, that I, we have a Christian hierarchy of values. And because okay. we understand this is what, where progress all comes from is this particular hierarchy of values, which is responsible for basically all of human progress ever. So like we need to, uh, you know, fundamentally adopt this sort of uh, value structure and, are, and, uh, and lean into that. With are, you able to flesh, are you able to flesh that out a little bit? Um, maybe be specific yeah. about, about what that hierarchy of values looks like? Yeah. So what it means is you're, you're the, the Christian concept of love, you know, which is a selfless kind of love, which is different okay. than the secular variation of love. And, you know, that one is going to be at the very, very top, you know, because, you know, in Christian hierarchy, you know, you're, you know, God is love, you know, and God's at the very top of the hierarchy, you know, so that's the, uh, you know, we're, we're going to adopt that, you know, model of love, which is actually very highly specific about how it actually works. It's, a, it's an incentive system, not just a concept, not just a feeling or an abstract concept. Sure. It really is a, a model of an incentive structure for human behavior to where you are, you know, rewarded for behaving a certain way and punished for behaving other ways. And the, uh, and so we're going to adopt that model, you know, as our number, as our, what we consider to be natural order. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, you know, that, that this will be, you know, I was talking to a, another guy on Twitter about this. And I was saying that, you know, it's tough for me to describe natural order right now because the only terms that exist to describe it with are religious terms. And I try to stay away from that in my yeah. talk, even though I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm a devout Catholic. And, you know, I've been, you know, a really, you know, deeply spiritual Christian my whole life. So I'm not like shy from it, but I understand most of my audience does not have that kind of background. So, and so I'm trying to develop more terminology to, you know, that, you know, that other people might understand to where I don't have to be appealing to, uh, you know, straight up religious terminology when I, de- you know, when I describe what natural order really is, which is based, it's, it's exactly the incentives of, Christian love, but you know, if, I, if I, the moment I say Christian, I get turned off by half the audience of you know who are you know largely agnostic or atheist, and they think they're about to get another Bible lecture when they're not. But it's actually an economics lecture. But again, the only terminology that exists for it right now is you know straight out of the Catholic Church. So uh, I'm kind of stuck with it for right now until I can develop you know some more terminology. I was trying to build a chart for it, but I couldn't get, you know, Microsoft Visio to work. I was going to bring, I was going to bring a chart in for this episode because it, it really helps with the explanation of how this incentive structure works. It's not something you can really describe with words. It's easier to show you a picture and point. Can but, you give examples of like, if this, then that? Uh, yeah. Okay. So of like, uh, you know, okay. So a difference between, you know, like the secular variation of love and the uh, and the uh, Christian version the, is that the Christian version is selfless love, and what that does is if you imagine there are two people because you can't really love yourself that that's kind of a contradiction in terms at least in terms of what Christianity is talking about you can't be selfless loving yourself you know that that doesn't make sure. sense so sure. the uh, so the idea of a selfless love when you add that you know kind of adjective onto it that modifier. What that does is it means that 
you know, uh, my value, what's coming to me from you. You know, let's say you and I, you know, love each other uh, as, you know, I don't know, husband and wife or something like that, or, <laughs> but uh, no homo. But the, uh, <laughs> but yeah, let, let, you know, it, the, uh, uh, the, the structure is, okay, I, you know, because I don't care what you're doing for me, I love you. What okay. I'm going to, I'm going to do your maximum good across time. And because you don't, you know, do it all at once because that actually doesn't maximize you. It's actually time balanced. And so, it, so like, think of like, if you have a kid and you do, do you, like, do you give them all, you know, that value up front? No, because you're going to spoil the kid. Do you give it to them all on the back end? No, that's deprivation. That's also going to hurt them. You would balance it across time. That, and so that's what actually maximizes, you know, that the other person's values when you, you know, you produce it yourself and you give it to them across time. And they do the same exact thing to you to where they're balancing, uh, you know, the uh, value they're giving you across time. And that, and because both people are doing it, it balances out. But more importantly, it doesn't just balance out, it actually produces more. So mm-hmm. as actually the incentives always push you upwards in terms of the value creation. And this is the, uh, the fund and this, incentive structure of I want your best good and you want my best good. And together that produces, you know, a, you know, a new kind of wealth in the center, which is always self-increasing, you know, this, you know, kind of triple incentive right here. Cause you, you have the lover, the beloved and the love itself, which is the, you know, that incentive, th- this is that incentive system. But what is really fascinating is we actually figured out how to do this <clears throat> in a decentralized way. With you know the court with basically joint stock corporations, which mimic the same exact uh, you know incentive structure where you have you know your shareholders up top. That's one set of ownership. That's you know basically your lover in this point because part of love is you know being voluntary, being self and having self ownership. <laughs> this is what you know where I think libertarians get the most correct is that a prerequisite for for love you know or Christian love, selfless love is yeah. self ownership and voluntary transaction. <clears throat> And this, but the structure of the joint stock corporation mimics it because you can have the shareholders up top who own themselves and have ownership. They are you looking for a basically a time balanced medium of exchange, you know, with customers on the other side. Customers are self ownership, and they you know, and they have a corporation in the middle which exists to balance the goods of both the shareholders and the customers. And and when the uh, and that ends with more value creation across time. So, you know, the, and, and by doing it this way, you don't actually have to know each other. So you can actually ha- do, have this idea of love your neighbor as yourself and you don't even have to know your neighbor. And that was the, and you can coordinate this uh, production using the price system, using number values. And that way people can actually do a real calculation with, you know, with pricing. And it's, and it, this model of you is, you know, respond, you know, we invented in like 1602 was responsible for everything that came afterwards with the enlightenment, with, you know, liberalism and all this other stuff that libertarians regard as good. I don't regard all of that as good, but uh, because it started producing more and more and more and more, which is its value structure, uh, what ended up happening is it exposed all of the uh, scalability issues that Christian monarchy had, because monarchy as, itself as an institution has about four or five major uh, scalability issues where it, uh, you know, where it, it, it can't grow beyond a certain point or else it's going to, you know, fracture and fall apart. And ju- just because like, it's like the central planning problem is, you know, a one major one because you have one guy in charge of making all the laws. 
And that's just, it's not scalable. The other is like the, another is the, uh, not the not separation uh, of management and ownership. So basically, if you remember that joint stock corporation structure, there's a separation of ownership and management there, mm-hmm. which prevents, you know, the management from basically looting the company uh, for, you know, for their own uh, good. And the, um, and real, real quick. So is, so is a joint stock company, and this is just completely my ignorance, is that different from uh, like a corporation as we know it today where the... Uh, yes, and yeah, kind of. Basically, okay. the, uh, yeah, they, they are the same exact model, but you don't... A, a lot of times, you know, the ideal is that there's a total separation of management and ownership. Yeah. That's what, yeah. so, so the CEO of a joint stock company wouldn't be given tremendous amounts of ownership in the company as part of his compensation package. Then. Is, yeah. that, is that right? And, okay. that, and that's, you know, and the, and that used to be the case actually, where they would make large, large salaries, but not actually have, you know, ownership. And because, it, you know, that changed in the nineties okay. with Bill Clinton, when he, you know, had, had like a stupid surcharge for uh, the, uh, you know, for, you know, for, uh, you know, CEO salaries. And that, you know, was where we got the invention of CEO stock options, you know, cause okay. that was how they got around the tax and it fucked up the whole system. And now we, and now we're at the, the quarterly thing where every CEO in order to, you know, get his uh, stock options more, you know, more valuable, he's basically looting the company and looting all the value. And it, it gives us this real more parasitic version of capitalism, which, you know, was again was this the scalability issue that was endemic to uh, mo- you know Christian monarchy, and now we've exposed a whole lot of scalability issues in capitalism, unfortunately. And that's and, why when and that's why when Steve Jobs took Apple back over in ninety eight or two thousand or whatever mm-hmm. it was, and he you know they they made a huge deal out of the fact that he only made a dollar a year salary, um, but you know I mean he owned half mm-hmm. the company, <laughs> not half yeah. the company, but yeah I mean substantial uh, so, portions of it, yeah, yeah. Um, then again, I mean, there. I guess if he owns that much of Apple, then he is incentivized to manage it well, just because. But he's in, no, it's different though, because he, okay, he has two, you know two sets of incentives there. One is to you know to manage the company. The other is his personal incentive, and those are not necessarily going to be the same thing. And now, now him as a person, as a manager, he always did you know prioritize the company's you know uh, incentives over his mm-hmm. own. But he, but, didn't act, you know, he didn't need to. But the to. fact that they're not then that they're not mutually exclusive means that there's a bad time balance there that's going okay. to end up causing trouble down the road, and it and it has now. So, so it sounds yeah exactly. So it sounds like this conception of love is low time preference love, uh, which uh, which I like. Love. It's not it's not just low time preference. It is low time preference, but because of that, you know, basically there's no force in love. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So yeah. you're necessarily having a very a zero time preference for power there because you know, I think about do you do you use force against someone you really love? No, you know that's that, it's like you know maybe if they're a kid and you want to spank them. I know there are people who disagree with that in the audience, and they would say, of course not, no. But you know most people uh, don't see a problem with using that as like a punishment. You know, on rare occasions when it's merited or something like that. You know, that's like the, but you would never do something like that to your wife. You know, a kid is kind of a special case. But, you know, like with your, you know, if you have like a wife or, you know, I don't know, your boyfriend or something like that, uh, you would not, you know, smack him or something like, like that. That's just not how you're, and you're not going to force him into something like that. That's not love. Yeah. You know, so, and we don't really have a concept in English uh, for forced love. You know, we don't have a word for that. But, you know, the, uh, the closest one is rape. 
You know what I mean? Right. It's like it's it's abomination. It's abominable. So you would not. Uh, you would. You, you know. So when we say it's a it's a low time preference. You know, thing. You know, we're talking low time preference for power. It's going to be naturally highly productive because you're not using force. And again, what Rothbard talked about in Anatomy of the State was that if you use force against someone, you disincentivize further production. So, you know, having a, a an incentive system that you know by na- by its own nature eschews all force. You know, that's something that's going to be highly productive. This is why I say this is the natural order where you're exchanging good for good. You're not exchanging good for evil. You're exchanging good for good. And you're doing it in a voluntary way through a medium of exchange that ends up creating more value for both sides. We exchange value for value and create more value. That's capitalism. When you you say it's the natural order, just from a Christian standpoint, do you mean like pre-original sin natural? Uh, it, it, the, the reason the reason I say the reason I say it is because it, it feels like it feels like you're equating humans with God, uh, no, or at yeah. least their at least their moral their moral a- yeah, actions. Yeah, well, you do see the same incentive system and God. That's the ideal. You know, mm-hmm. again, humans cannot behave an ideal. You know, mm-hmm. we can kind of get close, but you have to understand we're still humans and. You know, this secular love where we kind of came from for 10,500 years and actually hundreds of thousands of years before that is, you know, pretty hardwired into us. And this new concept we kind of gotten got in the last 2000 years, uh, that is something that is very, very new to us. And we're trying to master it right now. We're still in that process of mastering it. And when I call it natural order, this is my way of trying to get away from the 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 uh, the Christian idea, because again, that's turns people off, but it is virtually identical to the, uh, you know, to the Christian idea. The reason I would say that this is, you know, something slightly different or not, well, not like slightly different, but the reason I would call it like this, it's say it's not quite like pre-original sin or something like that. This is an incentive system that mimics, you know, what the way we're supposed to be behaving or that, that actually is the way we're supposed to be behaving. And if we behave this like as we did in nature, you know, back in, you know, before the, uh, you know, but let's talk secular, you know, like in, you know, before the end of the last ice age, this was basically, if you did not behave this particular way, you're probably not going to make it. You know, like if if you're doing all of these, uh, you know, hedonism or, you know, degeneracy or stuff like that, your tribe is going to die. You know, I mean, because the selection pressure from just natural selection was so heavy that if you don't, you know, behave perfectly as a tribe, you're probably all going to die. And, you know, so you need, you're basically forced by circumstance to behave this natural order, you know, because if you don't, you're dead. That seems very different from Hobbes's conception of the state of nature. Well, if you think of the state of nature as the selection pressure, you know, what would you do in order to get around it? One, you'd have a very strong tribe that's going to be, be you know, highly uh, cohesive and productive. So anything that, you know, decreases production or decreases cohesiveness or like increases mental illness or, you know, illegit- or, you know, Ill- you know uh, illegitimacy rates or stuff like that, these are going to be highly, highly threatening to the, to the survival of your tribe. So you're basically, I mean, he's, Hobbes isn't quite wrong about, you know, that, but I think, he, you know, his prescription of how you would get around it what, or how you'd survive that sort of state of nature is what's incorrect. 
And yeah, this is something Hoppe has talked about. I haven't quite read uh, A Short History of Man, but from what has been described to me as is basically, this is what he's describing here as here's the sort of idealized order that you would have if you're, you know, surviving the end of the last ice age, which was a real age of upheaval and you had a massive extinction event at the end of it. So if you met, if, uh, basically it wiped out, you know, like 80% of all mammals over a hundred pounds, <laughs> which is, you know, basically and it decimated human populations too. And so it's like most of all, like the mammoths and the mastodons and the saber-toothed cats and stuff like that, they didn't make it. And the, and most of the humans did not make it. And so the humans that did were the ones that, you know, were behaving these sorts of incentives and we're not going to have the degeneracy. We're not going to have the hedonism. We're going to be saving for the future and preparing. And, you know, we're going to have highly cohesive uh, family structures at, with extended family, not just nuclear family, et cetera, et cetera. So it was this natural order that they were behaving that made them survive the, the extinction event at the end of the last ice age. So, you know, if you, and uh, we got, a, got away from it afterwards when, you know, okay, so now all, <laughs> we mentioned 80% of the, mega, of the uh, mammals over hundred pounds died, you know, like not just like they're like gone, they're extinct. And right. so, you know, with all of that selection pressure removed, humans are at the top of the food chain now. <laughs> we weren't before. So at that point, the, the, you know, that pressure got removed and now we're able to do a lot of, uh, you know, to afford th these uh, worse behaviors that are not nearly as productive as the natural order. And that's where we were for 10,500 years until we kind of reinvented it under the idea of Christian love. Given that hard times create strong men and strong men create good times and good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. Um, so we've got that, we've got that cycle. I think we probably agree on it, that it yeah. is more or less accurate. Um, do you think that an ice age is an inherently hard time, which necessarily creates that kind of society? Whereas when you're not in an ice age, when you're in a temperate age, so to speak, um, there yeah. is more room for coercion and violent competition between between humans. Absolutely, but well, the problem with an ice age is too hard. You know, yeah. the uh, yeah. you're talking, you know, an ice age is twenty degrees. The planet is twenty degrees colder on average, so mm -hmm. agriculture is kind of out the window. So with yeah. no agriculture, you have no large populations, no large population, no capitalism. Basically, you're uh, you know for thousands and th hundreds of thousands of years, our you know division of labor was hunter gatherer warrior. <laughs> so yeah. two out of three were predatory. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, so it's like uh, agriculture just wasn't a thing until the, the planet warmed up. So it, it's kind of like, you know, yes, there is that, that hard times create, you know, strong men and all, and all that. But, you know, if, it, if the times are too hard, okay, okay, you can't get strong men because there just not, aren't nearly enough of them. <laughs> and, so but, what, ha what happens though is that you, you then get the um, – like I guess it, it was really like the shaman or the priest or what today is the bureaucrat. Um, he gets into the mix of the hunter, the gatherer, and the warrior, and kind of fucks everything up. How do you get around that? Kinda, you know, with the shaman it was different because you, you know, even right then you had to have a shaman who would, you know, provide who would be a uh, good for the natural order, not mm -hmm. uh, you know, parasitic on it. 
So like, you know, the uh, shaman would be usually like your medicine man or something like that, where they would, you know, try to try to be. So they provided something. Yeah. They, they provi- actually provided something of value. Yeah. Like they're, they're, okay. you're kind of your makeshift medic. Not really, but you know, that, that was what they were there for. Mm-hmm. They were also there to, uh, you know, provide you with like coming of age rituals, which, you know, often included, you know, drugs, which help uh, facilitate that process. Yeah. You, know, you know, with like vision quests and something like that, like, like you leave all of your childhood, uh, you know, high time preference behaviors behind and you're able to, you know, ascend into adulthood in a matter of weeks instead of a matter of decades. You know what I mean? And they were there to help facilitate that, pro- that coming of age process, particularly for men, because yeah. it doesn't matter too much for women. It does, but like not nearly as consequential as it is for men, you know, because if men are fucked, if the men are weak, uh, bad times are going to follow. <laughs> it's not, a, you know, it's not the the, the that the uh, uh, syllog- that's saying is not that you know, strong, you know, bad times create strong women. Uh, no, <laughs> that is not that, that's not what we're that's not what it is. It's just you know, it needs to be strong men, and unfortunately, that's our role, evolutionarily speaking. So, so uh, in the in the progressive era, like which I I still consider us being in the progressive era. I don't think it ended with Roosevelt, obviously. Um, the bureaucrat has kind of taken on that role, though. He is the one who is sort of the 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 mediator between and and we're seeing this now as progressivism um, has not only like been like a religion, but has become in its own right uh, a fully fleshed out a religion, religion, and yeah. especially in the last year and a half or so. Uh, where Anthony Fauci is clearly the high priest. I mean, he's he's taking mm-hmm. a fall right now, but it, for for a whole year, um, he was that mediator between God and man. Is is that is that just the priesthood becoming predatory, or is that something uh, part been, and parcel? It's with been the that way for a long time. Again, like if you you know, it's like the the presence of you know good or easier times allows for predation because predation is kind of a luxury. You know, you have to yes. have production first before you can have predation. Yep. That's kind of just a priori true that, you know, what are you going to predate upon if there's nothing being produced, you know? And mm-hmm. so the, uh, so yeah, like now we've seen the, uh, this religious structure become, you know, very predatory, which is, you know, kind of like exactly something I've been saying for, you know, years is that, hey, this, uh, the, you know, this, uh, if you have a, lower time preference for power that's going to create excess wealth and wealth mm-hmm. is power. So when you have a high concentration of it, you're going to attract all of the bad people who want to predate upon it and who are going to try to get, you know, to, uh, you know, predate their way to the top of that hierarchy. Even if you would do it all, all through voluntary, uh, through, uh, even if it's entirely produced voluntarily, it's still going to attract the predators. And so, and what you've seen with like Anthony Fauci is that, you know, with this, uh, you know, like the, this government we had of this, you know, limited constitutional republic, I say limited in air quotes, you know, but uh, <laughs> the, the uh, you know, but this is something that, you know, uh, the nature of a republic is that it does not want to be limited and it's going to figure out ways to usurp all of those limits, you know, because a, a republic is designed for, you know, power. It's a high time preference for power, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's form of government. So if you have something that is there's a limit on it, like Christianity, which you know is a very very low time preference for religion across the board, not just for power but across right. the board, 
And so that's something that's actually going to be a natural check and balance on the growth of your republic. So your republic has a natural incentive to get rid of Christianity, which is uh, you know the main check and balance against it, not the constitution. Right. It was actually Christianity and the gold standard that the uh, that were the two major checks against the uh, the growth of government. And you know, I mean, not, neither of them was a silver bullet, obviously, because this is a republic. You know that those incentives are going to overpower any sort of check you put in its way. Sorry, right, republics are such shitty forms of government, but. The uh, so you know now the uh, the state and the religion have a conflict. The state's going to win that fight and is going to replace the low time preference religion of Christianity with something substantially more high time preference like wokeism, and that's inevitable. So you you have a conception of so the left and right. We already talk, we talked about the left and right last time you were mm-hmm. here. Um, the low time preference for power on the right versus the high t- time preference for power on the left. Um, but also you talk a lot about prey behavior leading to this predatory behavior that we're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about prey, prey behavior? I believe we touched on it last time, but I'd like to hear you talk about it a little, a little bit. Yeah, more. the uh, like prey behaviors are anything that, you know, signal weakness, you know, to a predator. So like the same, like when you have encounter a, you know, an apex predator in the wild, one thing they'll teach you to do is don't turn and run right. because turning and running is, you know, it signals to the predator that you are prey and it's time to pounce. And so, like, if you see, like, a black bear in the woods or something, you're supposed to, like, stand up tall, group together, get loud, and you show and you show that you're not afraid of it. And you, But whatever you do, don't turn your back on it. You can back up slowly, and, you know, but you have to keep your face fronting, and you stay loud, stay talking, stay, and, uh, you know, show that you're not afraid of the black bear. For the grizzly bear, you know, just play dead. <laughs> it's like, uh, you, <laughs> grizzly bears are a different, you know, different breed. But, you know, same thing is, like, you, do, you know, you don't show fear. You don't turn and run. You know, that's a prey behavior. And the, uh, so like same thing with uh, humanity is humanity actually has a whole bunch of prey behaviors where if you signal weakness to certain people, they're going to try to take advantage of you because that's how they're hardwired. They're, you know, it's a, and it, it's not a small percentage of them either. You know, it's probably closer to a third. You yeah, know that it's a lot of have this sort of ingrained uh, behavior of we are predators. <laughs> Again, for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, two thirds of your division of labor was predatory. So, but of course, they they don't think of themselves as predators. I mean, no, I'm sure because, I'm sure some of them know that they're fucking insane, but like a whole bunch of them really just think that they're helping people who are less fortunate than they are or who are weaker mm-hmm. than they are because they, uh, but, because they engage in this prey behavior. Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Remember, I said that we're highly evolved to behave our incentives mm-hmm. you know, to the point we don't have to think about our incentives. Mm-hmm. It's like, because if you have to think about your incentives, that's hesitation and that you're probably not going to make it. So we're highly evolved to not have to think about our incentives. So when people are behaving their incentives like the left and they, they think they're helping people, and really they're just behaving their predatory incentives you know, for power. And, you know, and they don't have to think about, about it, you know, at all. They don't have to think about it that way. They don't have to have like a uh, ill intentions in order to become predators. They just are because this is the incentive system they're, they're embodying. And so would you consider, um, you talk about moral degeneracy and I don't usually use that word, although I, I, I understand what it means. Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the. You're the, degenerating the, society back into yeah, barbarianism. Right. It's the behaviors that that devolve culture rather than evolve it. Um, what? So 
why is it that, I mean, just speaking of myself, the fact that I live with a man mm-hmm. is degenerate. And also, why is it prey behavior or is it? Uh, it kind of. And you want you want you want to offend me? Don't don't worry. Yeah, there, there's that, that's a there, homosexuality is. You know, I talked about this with Reed la, uh, last night. You know, because he asked me the same question, mm-hmm. and the uh, it, it's like that one's very complex. But you know, what I said what, you know, to him was okay. The problem with homosexuality actually doesn't start with homosexuality. It actually, starts with the sexual revolution. See, the moment that you uh, say that sex is not about reproduction, which is its natural or that's its right. place in the natural order, it's it's about reproduction. But when you say, you know, take it, take that out and you say, okay, no, sex is actually about pleasure instead, that actually create you know creates market demand for you know sex to be to become a pleasure. So you're going to have new variation because we know how market demand works. You're going to have new kinds of variations and new kinds of you know uh, scales and stuff like that to where you have something that's taken in far greater quantities than it is naturally meant for or it's in very different ways than it is naturally intended for. And what you're going to end up doing over time is, you know, because of this new market demand you've created, which is a demand for pleasure, you know, rather than reproduction, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to be moving along the scales towards, uh, you know, very, very darker practices, you know, like, you know, sadomasochism mm-hmm. or you know, eventually pedophilia. And that, and you know, homosexuality is kind of a stepping point. Uh, it's it's a one of you know one point on that spectrum. Which you know, I'm not saying that you know homosexuals are pedophiles, but you know, it's you know, pedophilia was and homosexuality uh, were normal throughout human civilization for basically all of uh, all of human history. You know, where and they were only you know the only time they weren't were basically the exceptions of Judeo-Christian, you know, societies where homosexuality wasn't really a thing. And when I say homosexuality, I really mean bisexuality, you know, like it was very normal for like all, everywhere you look in human history for, you know, uh, for men to be bisexual, not, okay. not, uh, not heterosexual, you know, it's like, you know, like two thirds of them were heterosexual, but, you know, bisexuality was, you know, it was also not just considered to be the normal, it was actually considered to be the apex of love, you know, where, you know, the, the male to male love, not female to female love, that was very different. Those are not the same, you know, and whereas like male to male love, because, okay, if you think of us evolution, men, evolu- what's our evolutionary role? We are the romancers, we are the wooers, whereas women tend to be more recip- recipients of that. So, which is which but, is but, why there's so much promiscuity in in gay communities. Yeah, uh, well, it, it, and it, it's actually uh, far worse than that than that because what ends up happening is you know the uh, because women as they're, they're the way they evolutionarily evolved was that hey how you know how about we outsource all of the uh, competition and the sorting for uh, men for deciding who which of the men are are the best we're going to outsource that to all the men so we're, we're going to make them highly competitive so we don't really have to be. And uh, it was a very, very intelligent way of sorting men out and getting them to be civilized. The problem is it has an unintended side side effect is, okay, well, you know, they're all competing to be the best romantic, the best uh, value provider to women. Uh, what if they decide they don't want to give that value to women? 
<laughs> and so it's like, like imagine what, what if they just decided to romance each other instead of women? Right. And well, what, what ends up happening as a consequence of that is that, uh, well, the women aren't going to get that value be, and men are going to love each other and not women. And what that results in invariably. So everywhere you see homosexuality in, uh, in ancient uh, human history, you always see uh, two things. One is eventually pedophilia comes along. Uh, because again, that's because that, that first thing where you're making is all about pleasure. So that's eventually going to get there. It's not not you guys' fault, but this is simply the sure. value net way, way that market demand works. The second thing you always see is women are treated as second class citizens because the only way women get their rights is men give it to them. And so if the if the men don't love them because they love each other, uh, women are going to be treated as second class citizens. And, you know, and so some might joke and say, oh, well, that sounds great. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is that women end up, you remember that how we said that, you know, when women sort men, you know, force all, all the men to be competitive and, and civilized and how that's mm. a good thing that when men are civilized, well, when that doesn't happen, you know, the uh, men don't become civilized and they end up being barbarians for 10,500 years. And so that's the, so that's kind of the problem is that you actually need, uh, this is why all, you know, when you saw Christianity really start to take power, you know, it started elevating the, uh, the, the social status of women, like the idea in the Bible where it says, hey, you know, in the New Testament, where men are actually commanded to love their wives, husbands are commanded to love their wives. That was very progressive at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the idea you would love your women is very was very progressive back then, and the uh, just that that wasn't how you thought about it in that in that time period of Roman civilization. It was uh, that the ideal of love was man to man, not man to woman, and so that but. So, you know, this is no accident that when we started, Christianity started elevating women, that you got all of the uh, progressive uh, things like, you know, we're going to, okay, adultery is no longer a death penalty that happened under uh, Holy Roman Emperor uh, Charlemagne in like the 800s-ish. Because he uh, you know, had a uh, a woman, a, a uh, his wife was actually a prostitute. She was not like a prostitute, but like a madam. And, you know, it's like, okay, so, you know, he doesn't want to, he loves this woman and he doesn't want, you know, her to be executed. So we're going to change that law. (laughs) And, you know, you see that, you see that all of human progress, you know, basically resulted from the elevation of women, you know, in their social status because men were commanded to love her. And that was where we got all of human progress from because men got civilized because of that. And whereas before we were basically just barbarians with uh, better clothes. And better weapons. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there is there a is there room in a pro social generating society, and it, that almost feels oxymoronic for homosexuality? Well, again, this is you know it it's tough because it, it, again, homosexuality isn't like the problem. It's kind of a symptom of the problem, yeah. you know, yeah. and you know, and you can go back all the way to the beginning where okay, well, we're talking about like okay. If sex is about pleasure, you're creating market demand and all that. Well, the first step on that line was like prostitution. You know, it's like almost the oldest, uh, uh, you know, you know, professions for a reason. And so it's like, you know, what do you do about it? There's, you know, it's it's, it's a really tough question because there's not really a good solution to it. 
Now, in the uh, Bible, it was kind of different because uh, you know you're talking 3,500 years ago, and when they when the, you know it talks in the Law of Moses about okay, well, what do you do if you find homosexuals? You put them to death. The reason for that was that they were the, the particular practice that they were responding to in Egypt was it wasn't like you know consenting adult to consenting adult. It was like, you know, it was adult to very, very young boy. And so you're really talking about pedophilia. That's why it got like the death penalty that it did. And, you know, was, you know, that was you know, more of what they were talking about. It wasn't, you know, to the, uh, you know, in the New Testament, you, you know, it, and the law was, I understand that this is not a moral document, it is a legal document right. that you're talking about. It was very specifically written about men. Women were not included in that prohibition. So like, what do you do about lesbians? It's like nothing. You know, there's nothing to do about to them legally, and so you know, legal. And and this is something I talk about in my archetropism lectures: is that you know the problem of degeneracy, you know, of degenerating a civilization back into uh, you know barbarianism, is that there might not be a good solution to it. You know, because everything you do to it might make the situation worse. You know, not better. So it's a uh, you know the the thing you do about it is you just have to have social pressures that, you know, can be, you know, maybe voluntary enough, like, like uh, you know, like what Hoppe says is, okay, they need to be physically removed through peaceful means, not through helicopters or something like that. Right. And, you know, there needs to be ostracism and stigma and all, and all that stuff. And, you know, that, that's tough for a lot of people because they don't want to, you know, because a lot of times with like homosexuals, uh, they tend to be very productive members of society. Mm-hmm. You know, they're well, not yeah, all I mean, the, the, they're not all getting drunk and you know having you know or, gay orgies in bars every single night with you know drug fueled uh, orgies or whatever. They're the, you know a lot of them are not doing that. A lot of them are, but you know at the same time, a, uh, you know, a whole bunch of them are not. So like, what do you do? There's there's probably not a really great solution there. And, sure. You just ask any old little mm-hmm. old lady in Alabama. I mean, you know, back mm-hmm. in the '50s and '60s when you know, this stuff just wasn't really talked about. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't talked about. That's the thing. I mean, like, she knew that her hairdresser was a, was a, yeah. going out and having sex with dudes, but, like, they just didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, I mean, and that's, there are a lot, in fact, my, my partner and I, really, uh, and my ex especially, God, um, he was mm-hmm. so boring. Like, we, that's why we broke up. I mean, he wanted to live, you know, just the most normal white picket fence sort of life, which, you know, I mean that yeah. there is, I think that there is some social room for that, I guess. Uh, it really is when, and it, you know, this isn't something that I've given a great deal of thought to. So I hope that my, uh, yeah, no, I understand the, where you're coming from. Um, that, uh, and again, like when I said to read was that, you know, again, it, it, like the problem isn't like, you know, the homosexuality is not the root cause of it. The root cause is that, you know, we have this idea that sex is for pleasure instead of reproduction, yeah. and there's not really a good solution to it. Yeah. You know, it's and like, that, I, don't, and I don't put the, you know, I don't lay all of the blame for the unintended consequences of, of homosexuality at the feet of homosexuality. You know, I lay it at the, at the feet of sex is for pleasure. And all of the uh, problems stem from there. That's the root of the cause, the, the root of the problem. So do you, do you buy the conspiracy theories that the the state was kind of behind the sexual revolution? No, absolutely. Yeah, no okay. question. So so that gets us into predatory behavior incentivizing yeah, prey behavior. Normalizing prey behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think of prostitution as uh okay, you know, even just like for like heterosexual prostitution, you don't have to mm-hmm. go yeah. just the act itself. 
it's like, okay, for a woman, you know, what is actually being done right there is there's no actually value that she's creating. She's actually just consuming her own value for and making it a short sale. Yeah, what you're talking about when you're talking when you talk about female chastity, you're talking about what is effectively a multi-million dollar asset and you're selling it for a few hundred bucks. You know, that's uh that's a short sale. And you know, you get less and less value over time because think about like a pair of shoes, you know, is it you know more valuable after it's had, you know, 50 previous owners or less? You know, yes. it's yeah. and yeah, you know, substantially less. So what you're actually doing when you're talking about, you know prostitutions, you're talking about a short sale of a multi-million dollar asset. And, you know, and so you, this is actually a squandering of value that's yeah. taking place. This is not, uh, uh, you know, being extra productive, but but it's even worse than that, is that, you know, eventually, you know, that, that part of that f- value of female chastity is, you know, like, you don't care if, if it's an old woman, you know, it's, it's youth is a thing. And, and it's, it is what's, you know, the value there. And when you grow old enough, uh, there's no more value there. You can't sell it anymore. Right. And so, you know, basically what you're left with is a woman who is basically all alone. No one's going to love her. By the way, that's a really, really sad. Well, I mean, just on a human level, that's a very sad life to know that people are not going to love you. But worse is that, you know, not, you, know you don't have any children, you know, you know because... You know, you presumably use contraception or something like that. Maybe back in the day, you would get, you know, get accidental pregnancies or something like that. But even then, that kid's going to grow up without a father who's going to, ha- and they're going to have very you know, strong mental illness, which hampers their own productivity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the you might not have someone to take care of you in your old age when you're not able to work at all. And you squandered all of this time not doing uh, real productive activities, not learning trade skills, not building a family that will take care of you when you're older. And, you know, you uh, basically, you know, squandered a multi-million dollar asset that you were born with. That's what that's talking about. So yeah, the state's going to step in and see that and be like, oh, this is this person's vote counts for just as much as anybody else. Let's see how I can you know ma- use this to maximize my power. This is a prey behavior. They're sensing that you're when you're doing stuff like that, you are creating a situation where you are going to be weak and vulnerable in the future, and the state's going to be right there to take care of you with welfare and make themselves necessary to you. And you know, or that the. Uh, Alternatively, they can, you know, throw you in a cage and satisfy their, uh, you know, uh, prison industrial complex donors because, you know, hey, a lot of prostitutes, a lot of, you know, female prisons are filled with prostitutes, which is, you know, a waste of tax dollars, if you ask me. I think that makes Mm -hmm. the problem substantially worse. But from the state's point of view, that makes the problem substantially better. (laughs) You know what I mean? Why does does prostitution, and for that matter, drug use, remain illegal if the state would like for prey behavior to... Uh, uh, because you know right. prohibitions tend to make the problems worse, not better. Okay. Yeah, prohibitions are just a terrible solution. See, like when I talk, talk to, uh, and this is something I think uh, you know, it's an actually a very big opportunity for your Christian conservatives and right wingers in terms of libertarian outreach to them is that you know, if you can point out to them that hey, the prohibition is actually making these problems substantially worse by you know raising the cost, you know, and, and you know in, in, incentivizing this behavior more. You know what? Yeah, and a better solution. This is something I talked to Dave Smith about, and I've you know had this uh, with quite a few 
real boomer con Christian conservatives yeah. where they're not, you know, when I saw talk about trying to legalize heroin, I don't call it that, but what I, you know, I call, you know, but by the end of it, you know, my, of my, I call it my Obamacare for drug dealers pitch. <laughs> and uh, by the end of it, they're not just like, oh yeah, okay, Andrew, I guess you won the logical argument with me and I'm going to forget about this two seconds later. They're actually like really enthusiastic about, actually, this sounds like a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> and because I, 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 I usually just take anything AOC thinks is a good idea, which is usually a terrible idea. And I just rattle that off as what I call socialism for drug dealers. And because they understand socialism as a weapon of mass destruction, and where you and so normally a bad thing they would oppose, but you know when I, when I say okay we're going to use socialism as a weapon of mass destruction against heroin dealers, they're like oh right on this is a great idea, <laughs> and so yeah absolutely uh, you know we would love to detonate a weapon of mass destruction against the enemy, and so did it with prostitution. You would actually use socialism as a weapon against you know these these sorts of industries instead of prohibition that would make the pro- the problem better not worse lay out that schema for us because i know that um as many as much as i would hope that my entire audience is listening to Pete's podcast i'm guessing there are some that don't um so talk talk about the socialism for for heroin dealers and <laughs> prostitutes and then we can get into anti-tax because i want to hear i want to hear yeah that i think that's well. actually a really good se- you know, segue right there yeah. you know because anti-tax can you be used to square a lot of these uh circles mm-hmm. and uh whereas like the you know with my uh, socialism for drug dealers i usually start it off as you know the pro you know, the problem with prohibition isn't that you know it's a it just doesn't get the job done you know we're having all of these uh, drugs are just killing our people and they're killing our family members and threatening our communities. And we see all this terrible loss of life because prohibition you know, just doesn't get the job done. We need to bring out the big guns. It's something with a proven <laughs> track record of death and destruction every time it's been tried. <laughs> and uh, that's why we need a you know something that can you know, a real weapon of mass destruction like socialism to you know really put these drug dealers in their place. And, you know, it's like, and I'm not saying this from like a libertarian point of view. That's the problem is you, when you come at this from a, this problem from a libertarian mm-hmm. uh, rhetorical angle, they immediately, they, they will immediately turn you off. <laughs> Everybody because, has the right to put whatever they want in their body that they, yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is not going to convince them. Or it's like, you know, even if you come at it from like, oh, this is hurting families. It's actually making the problem worse. It's like, mm-hmm. well, okay, you can say that it's making the problem worse, but you actually need to provide them with a solution of what's better and mm-hmm. saying, you know, pure free market libertarianism that's not going to make the problem better from their point of view. And you just need to accept that, that you're not going to convince them of that. So what you actually are going to convince them of is that, you know, hey, if we start, like step one, legalize all drugs. Step two, implement the great, you know, the green leap forward or the green new deal is like (laughs) the green new deal as they call it. But, uh, Supposed to like more like something more like a Maoist, <laughs> a green, you know, a, a, you know a, a great leap forward. It's uh, I call it the green yeah. leap forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you would, you know, just start there, and we'll say, okay, we're going to start the drug dealers off with a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage, and if that doesn't work. We'll go to twenty. And then they say, well, what about seventy-five dollar an hour? I, I like it. That shows ambition. <laughs> and uh, and then we can, st- you know, step from go from there to it, an extra forty percent marginal income tax to punish hard work. Because normally, we, and normally we're for, you know, hard work, but when it comes to drug dealers, this is an exception. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, and we understand that income taxes are here to punish hard work. And when the drug dealers work hard, people die. So, you know, we don't want that. 
uh, we're going to punish that. And we're going to, uh, you know, and after that, we can give them, you know, a whole bunch of like an ocean of red tape safety regulations. <laughs> and as far as the eye can see, red tape. <laughs> and, you know, they, and so they can be doing all of their compliance paperwork in triplicate. Why? Just, just because, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and after that, we can have some environmental regulations so the drug dealers can spend more time working with bureaucrats, measuring their carbon footprint rather than doing their productive <laughs> business. <laughs> By the time I get to the end of the list of all the, and if that, if all that doesn't work, we, we there's always price controls. <laughs> I'm, I'm just rattling off all of the worst ideas that AOC has ever had, and by the end of it, they you know, the the boomer comes will be laughing. They'll be like, "Oh, this sounds great! Oh, why is it? Why has no one ever thought of this before?" And you know, and uh, it's like, and they're ready to legalize heroin. And like, they're not just like, "Oh, you won the argument with me." It's like, this is a great idea. It's hilarious. I love this idea, and I would totally support this. And I just I changed my, you know, uptight lawyer of a boomer con dad, you know, from, to, from a, a, you know, absolutely never, we need to throw all drug dealers in jail, jail and we might even need to kill them. You know, I changed him from that to actually the socialism idea sounds pretty good. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I told you a hundred percent support this idea of, uh, you know, because this is substantially better than prohibition and it will actually get the job done. Now, you know, the... Uh, you know, and I would do like the same thing with like, you know, prostitution or something like that, where I would get it legalized this way, not through, you know, advocating, you know, rights or something like that, but by advocating that here's an actually a better solution, which is going to, you know, decrease the occurrence of the, the, the frequency of these sorts of actions or this source of consumption or degeneracy. And the way I would like square this kind of circle with libertarian principles, you know, is okay, one is that, that, you know, Having this, you know, the, these things socialized, it's certainly better than throwing people in a cage for them. And I would, uh, you know, put that in there as well. That you know, with like the socialism for drug dealers, you know, if they, you know, they need to serve out any of their violent crime sentences. I don't care, you, you know. So, but uh, for any other just drug-related crimes, I would just pardon a uh, mass pardon all of them and mm -hmm. release all those, uh, you know, drug dealers into the, uh, you know, on like kind of work release or something like that. You know, and but you know, on the condition that they have to join a union, <laughs> all of the worst ideas. Like, you know, I just like release them only to stab them in the back. <laughs> but uh, you know, because you know, we know what union does to prices; it makes them go through the roof. And you know, but and you know, but so I like their work is legalized now; they're unionized, and you know, and all and there's all, all kinds of other things I can do with that that actually you know make the situation better rather than worse and the uh and i think that's just the uh that's a, a way i would always push with conservatives and you can get them with any sort of you know i i don't know what the other big ones are you know gambling is kind of that that seems like a much easier one like well i don't really need socialism to do it you know i just need to say okay let's you know put some extra taxes on it and we're done and the uh and you know we can always have like red light districts and stuff like that where this stuff is kind of out, you know, we don't want this in the community. We want this out of the community, very far out of the community. Yeah. And you know, there's some un basically uninhabited parts of the United States, and we say, all right, draw the red light district right there. <laughs> so people actually have to travel to get to it, and we can have all sorts of zoning regulations that prevent people from setting up shop close by. And that all just raises the cost and, ev and everything, and makes it substantially more likely that 
you know, the damage is going to be contained. And then, you know, and even like with, uh, you know, uh, like prostitution, this was St. Thomas of Aquinas. His idea for was, you know, if you ban it, it's going to make the problem worse, you know, not better. And so what you do is just put it in a red light district, basically, where, you know, it's, it's in one part of town or preferably outside the town that, you know, where people really have to go to it. It's, it's basically out of sight, out of mind, unless you really want it. And then you have to go to it. You know, it's not just conveniently located right there. And they, so it's like, I even have the backing of like the arguably the greatest Christian thinker of all time that this sort of idea works or like it's a better solution than prohibition. So, but if you really want to square this circle, you know, we can talk about the anti-tax. Do you have a question before I move on to the anti-tax? Well, just a fun fact. Did you know that the National Mall was built over the red light district in Washington, D.C.? No, I did not know that. Yeah. But it uh, uh, makes perfect sense that they would do I it that a, way. I got a guided tour of the National Mall from none other than Thaddeus Russell himself, the expert on red light districts. <laughs> um, it was it was a really actually a really good historical tour. If anybody ever has the chance to join him in DC for that, it's pretty cool. So anyway, yeah, let's talk about the anti-tax because that's the that's the interesting thing that you've been talking about on all the podcasts, and uh, I'd love for my audience to be able to hear it as well. Yeah, well, so the anti-tax is basically, you know, the next evolution of taxation. This is how you would get to a full-service government, which, again, most of us don't like the government. I understand that. But you would do so without any taxes of any kind. And how would you... And so it's kind of the the, the, the magic solution to taxation is how would you uh, <clears throat> run an entire government at all levels of government, you know, without taxes? And that's basically the way I do I do it is with, you know, like basically 10,000 sovereign wealth funds, you know, and basically at, at your, at your there's 19,500 about 20, or about 20,000, round up to 20,000 municipalities in the United States. Mm -hmm. And what I would do is as each and every single one of those, excuse me, each and every one of those municipalities has a reserve fund that usually has anywhere from eight to 14 months of uh, you know, taxes on hand that kind of just sit there every year gathering a lot more inflation than they do interest. They're usually like put in like a savings account or like very low risk, high liquidity uh, mutual funds, which just return pennies. And, you know, the, and so, you know, they're not really being invested. They're just like losing money, a value to inflation every single year. Uh, but they stay there basically year after year. And the, uh, uh, you know, as just like, okay, well, what happens if the economy really tanks? People can't pay their taxes or whatever. We need to have a savings account or something like that so we, that we can draw uh, principal from so we can, you know, manage our economy. Uh, we can manage our state, our uh, local government affairs. And, you know, so, but this, these funds are just kind of sitting there year after year. And I'm thinking, well, what if we just invested those in, you know, highly diversified portfolios? But with professional managers who will, you know, create bet, who will really uh, give you a real return on investment, and you know that, and I, and I would say, okay, and what if we had tens of thousands of those, you know, where we basically use these sovereign wealth funds to create passive income streams for the local governments, to where they don't actually have to, yeah, you know, because and due to compounding interest, you know, growing and growing every year, that you know, this, these things funds would eventually grow large enough that. Uh, we don't have to have, you know, taxation that we can run our entire our, our entire local government off of this passive income stream from the anti-tax. And there's a whole bunch of different ways you could manage that, or you could maybe invest in crypto or something like or something like that. 
you could maybe have like a fixed withdrawal amount or something like that or a fixed withdrawal rate, you know, like maybe three to 4%. That's the way uh, old people do it because we're really just creating a, reti- a re- retirement fund for yeah. a immortal government, you know, that never dies. So it's just going to go on into eternity. And that would be the sort of thing that would, you know, you could actually, you know, entirely fund your government without the need for direct taxation. And, you know, if you wanted to, you know, but that's just for the local government. So what do you do for like like your county level government, your state level government, your federal government? Well, what you would do is you would have all, you would go lobby each and every one of those uh, uh, levels of government to put direct taxes or substitution taxes on your local anti-tax fund. And by doing that, you've basically said that, okay, you know, I get to pick and choose which taxes I want my anti-tax to substitute for. And if your anti-tax you know, grows large enough, then you ha- then you can basically you know, have a, a, you know, a little parcel of your town, which has no taxes of any kind at every level of government. So you, you can have a, a, a part of your uh, government where, you know, par- uh, just, you know, your little town of like Lockhart or something like that, you know, could, if you grew the, your anti-tax fund large enough, it would have no federal taxes, so no personal income taxes, no de- you know, no tariffs, you, no corporate income quick, taxes. So, so the you mentioned the substitution tax. That's not that's not a concept I'm familiar with. Do you, substitution. Are you, are, you say, are you saying that the that that city's um, that their holdings would then pay for that city what, what the what the citizens of that city owe? Yeah, as like okay. their tax burden. So basically, cool. you know, and you could do it on like a okay, you know, you could say okay, well, how much revenue that the federal government kind of expect on average Mm. to earn per person. And you do that on a per capita GDP basis. And, you know, and then you would say, okay, well, here's how much they would have earned on an average. So, you know, we have this much that's going towards it, that, you know, that, that amount is, you know, X percent of the, you know, Y total. And, you know, therefore we're going to have that, you know, that amount as a rate reduction for our particular, uh, as an across the board rate reduction for our little town. And if that number is 100%, then you know it's a 100% reduction in all of those taxes. So basically that you know your anti-tax would pay your your uh, county level tax for you it would pay your uh your your state level taxes for you it it would pay your uh your federal level taxes for you. And you would just have no taxes of any kind and you have unlimited growth potential. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that you know, all these other la- levels of government, they still get their money. So, so what it, if the, it's a win-win for both. What if the monetary value of that sovereign wealth fund crashes? Well, that's well. What you would do is uh, you ha- you know what happens is that you would ha- by having a highly diversified portfolio, mm-hmm. you really limit the, your exposure to any one sort of crash. And you know, there's also uh, quite so you can have it also di- diversified by uh, geography to where you know okay the whole world isn't going to crash at once except under COVID <laughs> but uh, even then you know like what happened was that the values didn't actually crash they you know because you know all of the you know Federal Reserve printing presses across the world all kicked in at the end to uh, you know start providing all of that extra you know liquidity liquidity as they call it and just basically float the markets back up so they didn't actually crash. And it looks like they're going to be doing that from now until eternity. So we might as well get in on that. And 
But you know, even but even if you didn't do that, because you're highly diversified into different mar- uh, uh, asset classes, like maybe real estate or crypto or you know the uh, or, or you know FX or you know just stocks or or maybe mutual funds, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different asset classes out there that are not all going to crash at the same time. And that you actually look like, okay, well, what happened to housing prices in 2020? They didn't crash at all. They went through the roof, mm-hmm. you know, and. Because you know the economy, the uh, the Federal Reserve slammed interest rates basically down to zero, and the predictable uh, price rise came out of that. Yeah. And so it's like it's like actually like by diversifying your portfolio, you limit your exposure to a potential crash. So it's not really going to you know, be a problem. But let's say you, you know hypothetically somehow all of the asset classes crashed somehow, and well, I mean that okay, you still have the direct tax because this is only a substitution tax. So. Basically, what would happen is you would go back to paying your status quo tax rate. Mm-hmm. So the worst case scenario is basically the status quo. So it's like that. That's the beauty of this is that you know because it's a substitution that that makes it that your worst case scenario your taxes never go up. Your you know the the, the worst case scenario is always just the status quo. So you know, but but on average, you know, you're going to be paying less and less and less and less and less because that's how compounding interest works. You mentioned uh, in other places that the that this is kind of already something in practice in the Scandinavian countries. Is that right? Yeah, kind of. Basically, but they have it in practice at the national level instead of the uh, local level. And what you get out of that is a problem of <clears throat> it's not really all that competitive. So what, what what really makes this system work is that you know because it's all down at the local level, where that you know basically. You know, the local, if you plot all of your uh, tax rates on a map for your local governments and surrounding, you'll notice that they're usually pretty, you know, similar to each other. The Mm -hmm. reason for this is that it's really easy to move, you know, four or five miles, you know, to another tax jurisdiction to get a tax cut. So, you know, they want to, you know, eliminate that risk for themselves by making the, uh, their tax rates pretty dang similar. So that they're not they're not going to have you know mass movements out of businesses and pe- and people or taxpayers out of their jurisdictions. They want to have more of all of all of that in there. So they have to be competitive. So we're basically giving them a new tool to be competitive with. See if one of them starts adopting an anti-tax fund and their tax rates are going to go down and down and down and down and down. And every and all of their surrounding municipalities don't. Then all of all of the, those surrounding municipalities are going to lose taxpayers and businesses to that one that does. And so, basically, when one adopts it, they all have to adopt it because otherwise they're going to be un- uncompetitive in the in the future, and they don't want that. And so, the uh, you know this is a a kind of a self propagating system because of that, where they're go- you know where you know they're going to have to adopt it or they're going to get left behind, and they don't want that. What's to stop the the you know higher levels of government from taking that substitution tax and saying you know ten years down the line oh this substitution tax is bringing in so much revenue but these people aren't paying their income taxes and then mm-hmm. just levying another income tax uh, the same thing as stopping it right now okay the, uh, the <laughs> that's, <laughs> politics that's, basically yeah basically it's like all the corporations all the banksters and all the bastards on Wall Street you know mm-hmm. all the rich people who don't want it and want to. You know, when there's a tax cut, you know, the middle class doesn't really get the tax cut. It's really the yeah. upper class that gets it. <laughs> it's like the same forces that stop it from happening right now, basically. 
is that uh, I basically, you know, and if you, funny you mentioned them, the moment you, uh, you the moment the corporations figure out what this anti-tax thing is, that this is a basically a covert way for them to cut their own taxes. Yeah. I can guarantee you how that's going to work out. <laughs> but, uh, you know, suddenly everybody's heard of it. It's like, no, it's like suddenly, you know, suddenly everyone's adopting it everywhere mm-hmm. because the corporations want to cut their own taxes. And obviously we're not going to cut the personal income taxes or, or the personal property taxes. We're going to be cutting the corporate property taxes or the corporate income taxes. Uh, those are going to get kicked to the front of the line. Just watch. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I'm fine with that because it makes them human shields. <laughs> it, because basically, I, I, that's my way of buying off all the banksters and the corporations. Is that you know they're you know if they're going to be able to cut their own taxes first in line, well, that means their taxes are first in line to get uh, you know raised. Should anything happen to it, should the uh, you know higher levels of government decide they want to fuck with the system in any way. They're going to meet immediate pushback from the the banksters and the corporations who are already basically the government. So, when do you think it, this shift, where libertarians, broadly speaking, uh, have been talking about banksters and and um, the predatory CEOs and things like that? Because it seems like up until about a year ago, mm-hmm. you know, we, oh, this is just capital. This is just free markets at work, baby. That the CEO of that company. Of course, he should be making twelve million dollars a year, and also, you know, own half the company. Uh, that's not that's not predatory. That's just that's just capitalism. It's voluntary transaction. Private company, bro. If the, if the shareholders didn't like it, they can vote them out or whatever. Like, when do you think that shift happened? Because this, what you just said, does not sound like libertarian rhetoric, circa twenty fourteen or whatever it was. Oh, uh, does yeah. it? And I was just swimming in the wrong pools. No, uh, basically, I think that's about right. That. Uh, you know, the, the, the shift has really happened uh, since Trump got elected and you started seeing that, you know, him really tear the mask off the system mm-hmm. to where all of these corporations, all of these uh, <coughs> governments really started, you know, having an explicitly fascist uh, relationship to try to oust him. And, you know, a lot of people hadn't quite realized that the, you know, the fascism was that bad. And so they were still under this impression that, oh, actually, these are separate entities and they're not working together. They're not really having all that that much collusion. And uh, that mask kind of got ripped off. And we're like, oh, this is a full-blown fascist system. And, you know, but, oh, we actually, there is, these are not private companies, bro. And why, do you, why do you think libertarians, of all people, I mean, we're the smartest ones in the room. Why do you think we were so blind to that? Incentives. Yeah. <laughs> people, you know, people behave their incentives. And that, you know, because it wasn't apparent, because the damage wasn't quite apparent to us, or the threat, I should say, wasn't that apparent. Now that the threat is really right in our face, now we're scared. Now we're going to behave, you know, try to, you know, start wielding defensive force and start wielding, uh, behaving in a more defensive or, you know, potentially aggressive sort of way because now we recognize the threat the threat you know is a threat to us and that's that's our incentives one of the big topics that we're hearing about lately is national divorce it seems like it's becoming more and more popular even to normies is that something that you would advocate for or support if it were if it were like on the ballot or whatever oh i would absolutely vote for it i don't think it'll ever get put on the ballot but uh yeah think about it this way the reason secession is probably not either not going to happen or not going to work is the, you know, that, uh, you know, basically the, the reason you have to secede in the first place, mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? Which it's is like, what? yeah, basically that the, these uh, people are really aggressive against you. What like the the uh, the remember how I said earlier that you know in love there's no force, and when I mm-hmm. say that you know the left really hates America and hates us. It's like this is why they want to rule over us. They, you know, they don't love us at all. They hate us, and that's why they want to rule over us. It's because they hate us, and so it's like they're not going to like like that. They don't hate us and want to just let us go live in peace. They hate us because, and they want to rule over us and take our free will away from us. And you know, and you know, because we're not, you know, we're just dumb, uneducated hicks who don't even you know believe in vaccine science or something like right. that. And well, and and, and you're you using hate for us you're using the word hate there in the same way. And this, I don't know if you'll take this as criticism or not, mm-hmm. but you're using it in the same way that a leftist uses hate when they're talking about, you know, perceived homophobia where, you know, the Christian thinks, Oh, I just want them to be saved. The the left sees that as, as, you know, well, hatred yeah, of the, of the, of the highest degree. And here you're, you know, the, the left I would actually they, kind of agree with them there. Yeah. That, you know, actually, if you're, if you're trying to use this kind of force against them, Okay, I I don't think that's you know quite love. Okay, you know the the at least not the way you you're 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 supposed to be conceiving of it. I understand where they're you know, where the Christian is kind of coming from. That well, if I don't stop them, they're going to basically you know you know I, I I'm trying to do this for their own self defense or okay. what or whatever. But at the same time, no, you're at, you know you have to you know something you all, you see all throughout the Bible is that God also will try to put you know he, he will take uh, consequences into account. And so it's not just your input actions; it's also the output results. So give an not, example. Give an example of that. Um, that's a little. That's a little esoteric for me. I think. Yeah. Okay. So you see, you see this where where he's uh, writing. You know, a lot of you know, what are called I call them damage control laws. You know, mm-hmm. where you know basically the, in the law of Moses, you have to understand it was written in 3500 BC. So right. men were were are not 30 not 3500 BC, but 3500 years ago. So. Men were basically 3,500 years more primitive and barbaric and really, really barbaric. <laughs> so they had, you know, like when we, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, you see one law in the Bible where, you know, God is like, oh, you have to, uh, if you're going to kill your son, you have to give him a trial first because, you know, if he's like a wayward or violent or threatening son, you know, you can't just, as your parent, you can't just put him to death. You have to actually give him a trial first. And you know, modern humans will kind of take one look at that and be like, "What?" <laughs> and you know, it's like, "What kind of barbaric god allows for this?" You know, it's like, well, at the same time, you have to understand this is an anarcho covenant. There is no mm-hmm. government to enforce this. So basically, any law you write has to be enforced basically voluntarily. So if you try to make laws that you know that uh, the people are going to just have contempt for, because I understand these are thirty five hundred you know years years ago barbarians. So if you try to make laws that you know they're not that barbarians are not you know are not fit to govern barbarians, yeah. you know they're just going to ignore the law, and you're going to be getting them in the habit of ignoring the law, you know, and you and that gets worse and worse and worse and worse progressively. So what? You, so the reason he would do it like that, okay, you at least have to give the kid a trial first, is that that's something you could probably expect them to voluntarily do, mm-hmm. and you know the uh, and so. But what but what what's subtle about that is that the prior system had been 
it's not just your sons that you can kill without a trial. It's your daughters too. So basically by limiting, so he basically, you know, and by doing that, he made a major improvement to the prior system, which was you could kill either of your of your uh, children. Children. So basically you cannot kill your daughters. Does not matter. Cannot kill them. So mm-hmm. that's completely off the table. It's completely removed. And, and for the, uh, for your sons, you at least have to give them a trial first and, and convince you know, a, a, a you know a a jury of his peers, basically, or really a jury of the town elders, you know, old people who are you know wise enough with age or something like that. That this kid really is a threat and deserves to die. So mm-hmm. you would do it. But, uh, you remember that uh, that uh, school shooter in Florida uh, who was like had the FBI called on him like forty times or something yeah. like that. That's the sort of kid that okay we, that 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 law would really apply to. Because those kids exist, you know, and it's, it's, it's not like it's not a zero number, <laughs> and so the uh, and you want to have a system in place that can deal with something like that, where the kid is really a threat to, to society, and perhaps we should, you know, have a little bit of pre-crime in here. But mm-hmm. the uh, you know, you know, I don't, you don't have to agree with it, but you can see how it's a you know, you, you, he's trying to balance you know consequences with mm-hmm. inputs and. Because he's trying, you're trying to make the system better, you know. Any sort, you know, and under the the natural order, you know, you can't, you know, ju- the justice is defined as you know restoring the order that was lost as best you can. And if there is no, re- you know, action that can actually restore just restore order, then you can't do anything about it. And so, what you'll try to do is just do the best you can with what you have, and that's acceptable. And so. With something like uh, you know a lot of the laws that you know God gets defined as like barbaric you know as a barbaric God of the Old Testament or whatever, what that actually is is you know you had a whole lot of barbaric people and He's trying to make them more civilized incrementally, and because that's you know because if you try to you know, uh, make laws for, of perfection you know for perfect people perfect people don't need laws for one and at the same time the uh, so that's, that's kind of just obvious that perfect people are not going to need laws. The only reason you you need laws is because people are imperfect, and well, and depending on how imperfect they are, is you know you're going to have to tailor your laws accordingly. Otherwise, you're just going to completely ignore the law and getting and they'll be in the habit of completely ignoring the law. And you know, and when you're ignoring little laws, you that tends to escalate into ignoring higher laws that are more important. So. So he will, you know, try to balance these these things that way, and you know that was just you know the the you know killing your son was you know kind of one example of he's trying to balance the consequences with the inputs and understanding that these are thirty five hundred years ago barbarians that he's writing these this anarcho covenant for this is a Hoppian anarcho covenant <laughs> you know but you know but instead of being tailored for you know modern Hoppians you know who have lived after fifteen hundred years of Christianity. Uh, these are basically, you know, people who were slaves to like a few decades ago mm-hmm. in a barbaric, you know, uh, society of, you know, uh, uh, second, uh, you know, like uh, second kingdom uh, Egypt or second dynasty Egypt. <laughs> and, uh, you, know, if, you know, this is basically your Bronze Age collapse period where it's a shit show. And, you know, and so you can't, just expect these people, you know, these you know, Jews, these barbarians, to behave in a civilized way. I mean, you're just like you're barking up the wrong tree, man. That's not what these people are, and you need to uh, uh, tailor your laws accordingly. So when I, I so when I come to fast forward to uh, uh, the uh, modern day, uh, 
same rule, same meta rule still applies that, you know, humans are still basically monkeys and we need to tailor our laws accordingly to the, the fact that they're still mm-hmm. monkeys. <laughs> and you can't just expect, you can't write a law and expect everyone's just going to follow it. That's just not how humans work. Right. So that, how did we get to there? So you were, you were talking about damage control laws. We were talking about national divorce and why you don't think it would ever... Yeah, because basically, if you, if you start uh, down this uh, road where, okay, well, okay, the reason you need to secede or the reason secession isn't going to mm-hmm. work is the reason where you, know, you have to secede in the first place is that you have a whole group of people, you know, a whole large segment of society that are basically predators. They're basically still monkeys. And if you, uh, if you don't understand that these people are still monkeys, uh, you know, and you're trying to create societies that don't account for that, this isn't going to work, you know? So it's like the left isn't trying to rule over us because they love us. You know, they, they're ruling over us because they, they hate us. And, you know, we, you meant you brought up, well, hey, this is what the uh, Christians are trying to do in reverse. And, <clears throat> and, and I said, actually, I agree with that kind of definition that because what the, the, uh, you know, the 90s Christians tried to do actually made the problems, all the problems mm-hmm. substantially worse. But from, you know, uh, like the, uh, the, the gay marriage stuff they did to the, uh, uh, what was it? Like, uh, you know, the, uh, like the crime bills and stuff like that for drugs and, and, you know, all the criminalization of prostitution, all that, that had been going on for a long time prior, but, you know, they kind of added to it and it actually made all of, all of the problems worse, not better. And so that was not justice under the natural order, you know, which they should have been familiar with that, you know, okay, you actually have to make the situation better. Uh, well, you know, you can't, which is why I, I take you back to socialism for drug dealers and prostitutes. So yeah. that, you know, because that is a system that would make the, you know, the problem substantially better. In a, in a country that is founded on Puritanism, where even the Catholics are Protestants, it's, you know, yeah. it, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what you see. Because, you know, I mean, and this is, this is not a knock on Protestantism, really but they don't have they don't have moral theology they have ethics certainly like every every yeah. protestant th- seminary has ethics but they don't have moral theology that teaches this natural order that you're talking about um yeah. and i think that's where the apostolic christian churches um really they do really better are better job. for for shaping a society um because they because well, yeah, I mean, not only not all the way back to the source yeah not only do they do they know the source but they also leave more room for for mercy and grace yeah, human error, really. Yeah, <laughs> they under. Uh, yeah, but, and there, there's an old saying that you know the Catholic Church is more of a hospital for uh, sick people than it is a, uh, a a you know a book club for perfect people. Yeah, where, exactly. Yeah, whereas you know that Protestants go to church because they're perfect. Uh, Catholics go to go to mass because we know we're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's the it's a kind of an old saying that that's why it's you see the same thing with like, the Eastern Orthodox guys. You and I are both. Uh, uh, you are, might be a former Catholic. I'm still a current Catholic, but the uh, yeah, basically our church kind of understands that uh, you know people are human, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know if you saw that Simpsons episode, where, you know, uh, you know, Catholic heaven versus Protestant heaven. And Catholic heaven is all these people having tons of no. It's, it's like Homer goes to Catholic heaven instead of Protestant heaven. Marge goes to Protestant heaven, and Protestant heaven is like they're all in you know like over like like uh you know those uh you know sweater vests and playing you know golf or something like that. <laughs> it's all really uptight and awful. And you look over at on the other side at Catholic heaven where Homer is, and they're all like having parties and fiestas, and you know and, and the, you know it's like they, they're doing like those uh, like Mexican dances and stuff like that. It looks like a ton 
ton of fun. <laughs> it's true. It's a. It's like the poem from Hilaire, Hilaire Belloc, who was a, I think, English Catholic journalist back in the early 20th century. It's a, and I just pulled it up. It's wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's always laughter and good red wine. At least I've found it so. Benedictamus mm-hmm. Domino. Uh, okay, so one thing I want to one thing I want to point out. Um, you use love. You could be using care. Uh, because they're from the same root. The the word, so the word, the word... Caritas, you mean? Caritas, yeah, like charity, um, is the, yeah. is the, defi- is the, transli- the, the translation of that, of that, of that version of love, agape in, in the Greek. Yeah. Um, so you could be using yeah, that. Lot, and the reason, yeah. the, the other thing, the opposite, so Mother Teresa was, she's quoted as saying, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And when you say, I don't care, that's what, that's what indifference is. So yeah. you know that that well, might be that might be a yeah true, but but that might be a different a different framing you could you could be using. I don't know. Um, yeah, well, it's, again, I'm trying to stay away from like the religious because I don't want to get turned off by the uh, you know by by the uh, you know the, the agnostics or the non Christians. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand my uh, my audience, and I do have to tailor my message accordingly. Yeah. If well, I have unless, someone who has a, a Catholic theological background, okay, I can use the religious. Uh, jargon, which is substantially easier, but because the other one doesn't quite exist yet. But, you know, so it's nice to talk to James because he has that background, whereas some other people, you know, probably wouldn't. Okay, cool. Well, why don't we start, why don't we start winding it down? This has been an ex, like, I cannot believe we've been talking for almost two hours. Uh, <laughs> and I've got dinner to go to because it's my partner's sister's birthday tonight. So, oh, um, congratulations. Happy birthday. Yeah, she's a, <laughs> She's, I don't know. It's going to be fun. His family. I just love, I just love his family. Um, and I, they're, they're also mm-hmm. a Catholic, Catholic family that, uh, just sort of, you know, is always together. So, um, cool. Uh, so is there anything you want to, you want to say as we, as we close out or you, did you, did I miss any questions? Well, yeah. The, uh, well, it's like, well, most important question, where can I go to support this anti-tax? <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. The, yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, you know, James has already mentioned the the, the MeWe group uh, where you can join to just, you know, get updates and and uh, be a part of the conversation that's free to join. And that's it. That's on MeWe. There's, uh, it's a long thing, so I'm sure he'll put it in the description. Yeah. But if you want to donate, because, you know, this it isn't going to happen for free. And it's going to get cheaper the more we do it, you know, but because, you know, again, competitive forces, the more we implement this anti-tax, the more other uh, municipalities have to adopt it, you know, in order to stay competitive. But, you know, and getting those initial ones uh, uh, in there is not going to be, it's not free. It's rather cheap, but at the same time, I can't self-fund it. If you want to, you know, even just a dollar a month, you know, which is very, very little, you know, it adds up and it would help greatly to, uh you know, actually help get this anti-tax process started. And if you want to help, you know, with a a, a dollar a month, you know, if you can go to uh, MisesGOP.org forward slash donate, there is a link right there that you can help, uh, do, you know, donate to us at a dollar a month. And that would be greatly helpful towards getting us on the uh, step to a private property society where we can actually, you know, have all of this like socialism for drug dealers and all that actually have that channeled into the anti-tax to where like, you know, you would not be raising taxes on anybody. You would just be shifting them. And, you know, if you have that, that tax on drugs or whatever that pays directly into the anti-tax fund, you're basically found a way to just cut taxes and you turned, you turned a socialism into a tax cut. How about that? And the, uh, 
And so you have it. So basically having this anti-tax here, it sets the stage to pay people to think more like Misesians. So, you, you know, but, but like I said earlier, you know, if, if you're going to be trying to be uh, ideologically converting people, I think I feel like that's a, a Sisyphean task where you're trying to roll the rock up the hill and it's just not going to work. And, you know, whereas if you just want to pay people to behave like Misesians, that's the genius of the anti-tax is that, you know, I'm just going to I'm not going to try to convert people. I'm going to convert their behavior by just paying them to, you know, their reward. The, the more they think like a Misesian, the lower their taxes are going to be. And that's the benefit of something like the anti-tax is that it actually pays them to behave the way we want them to, you know, and doesn't even have to convert them at all. So that's, and that's, you know, if you want to help support this sort of, uh, you know, strategy where we pay people to, you know, think like Misesians, or like, or free market guys and libertarians uh, without having to convert them, then you would go to, again, MisesGOP.org forward slash donate and, you know, uh, contribute a dollar a month or, or more preferably, but, you know, the, uh, <laughs> you know, but you know, this helps us to get the process started and, you know, the, and it will help greatly. But, All right. You know, awesome. Thank you in advance. Uh, do you want me to, do you want to link to your Twitter or your subscribe star or anything, or do you want me to just focus on the Mises GOP? Yeah, yeah, like we can do uh, my subscribe star as well if you want to. If you have any questions for me, I don't really answer questions on Twitter anymore, you know, but because that's just, it's Twitter, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's too, too uh, cumbersome. If you want to ask me questions, you can uh, join my supporting listeners group for a very cheap price of $7 a month on subscribestar.com uh, forward slash popular dash liberty. And that, and uh, you can ask me any questions there, and I give you long, long uh, a- answers uh, that, you know, with great detail and great nuance that will answer your questions. All right, great. Andrew, thank you so much once again for joining, and best of luck to you. James, it's good to be here. I always enjoy the conversation. Cool. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. 